The Defense Department says it's just a few months away from transitioning away from firefighting chemicals that have contaminated groundwater at hundreds of current and former bases. DOD has now approved a military specification for a safer alternative firefighting foam and plans to start making the switch this summer. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has an update on the change and DOD's efforts to clean up decades of contamination. The chemicals at issue, known most commonly by the acronym PFAS, can come from a lot of sources, but in the military's case, the main cause of water contamination has been aqueous film-forming foam, which DOD developed in the 1960s and has been using as a fire extinguishing agent ever since. In January, under orders from Congress, the department published its first-ever military specification for firefighting foam that doesn't contain the chemicals of concern. Brendan Owens is the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Installations, Energy, and Environment. Congressional authorizations and appropriations made it possible for the department to continue its ongoing work to evaluate fluorine-free alternatives. Several fluorine-free foams are currently proceeding through the military specification qualification process, and the department plans to begin the transition to the use of these products this summer. So while we implement new technology to avert future risk, we continue our cleanup efforts intended to safeguard the health and well-being of our people. Nothing is more important than our people. Soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, guardians, and their families. The investments we make to improve the built and natural environments where they live and work are investments that pay off by improving their health and well-being. So far, the department has identified more than 700 military bases where there have been known or suspected releases of PFAS-containing foams over the years. Most of those cases have been connected to firefighting training, and the military services say they've stopped using the PFAS-containing chemicals for anything other than genuine emergency situations while they wait for PFAS-free alternatives to arrive. According to an analysis of DOD's data last year by the Environmental Working Group, 389 sites have had PFAS detected in nearby groundwater, and 266 of those have contamination levels above what the EPA considers unsafe. In an interview with Federal News Network, at the time that analysis was released, the working group's Jared Hayes says DOD has a long way to go to remediate the contamination problem on its bases and surrounding communities. In fact, those efforts really haven't even started. DOD needs to speed up the process with which they are using to clean up these chemicals. Uh, right now, they are going through the Superfund or CERCLA process at many of their sites, but no real cleanup has begun and they haven't entered the cleanup phase of CERCLA at majority of these sites. And so you have communities around those bases that are still being exposed to PFAS chemicals and aren't seeing an end right now. The worst place that we have seen so far has been England Air Force Base in Louisiana. Over 1.5 million for PFBS, which there is a health advisory for currently, and over 7.1 million parts per trillion for PFOS and 3.8 million for PFOA, many orders of magnitude above the health advisory level. Testimony this week before the House Armed Services Committee confirmed the military services are still in that assessment phase. Out of all the services, the Army has the most sites where contamination is suspected, 341. Officials testified this week that the initial phase of the investigation has only been finished at 180 of those locations. 80 have moved on to a more advanced phase of investigation. But Owen says DOD is committed to cleanup, too. It's vitally important that the full department takes its responsibility to 
to, to deal with the legacies of the decisions that we've made. Congress has been pressing the department for several years to deal with the PFAS problem. The 2020 Defense Authorization Act gave DOD until October of this year to stop using firefighting foam that contains PFAS chemicals. But North Carolina Congressman Don Davis says the cleanup process is taking too long. Unfortunately, Camp Lejeune um, has a long history of service members that's been um, harmed um, by environmental contaminations, specifically dealing with the water. In recent years, we've learned that service members have been exposed to another contaminant, PFAS, um, that exposes them to additional health risk. Um, in fiscal year 21 um, NDAA, uh, you were asked to provide a timeline and cost estimate for cleanup of all sites that's been contaminated by the, uh, the PFAS. Uh, the response to that requirement indicated that while the Navy has begun the cleanup process, phase two of the process of the remedial investigation and feasibility uh, study will not be completed until the last quarter of fiscal year um, 2029. Uh, which means we are probably looking at 2030 before the meaningful cleanup. And that 2029 date isn't a projected date for the completion of cleanup. It's the target for the Navy to finish its remedial investigation of the PFAS problem at Camp Lejeune. According to a report the department submitted to Congress last year, that timeline is similar across the country, and target dates to finish the cleanup process across sites that are found to be contaminated hasn't even been set yet. New Mexico Congressman Gabe Vasquez says he's seen a pattern of DOD being slow to remediate its past environmental mistakes. As a former city councilor in the city of Las Cruces, New Mexico, uh, where the National Guard was found uh, liable for contaminants of PCE in a Superfund site that cost the city of Las Cruces $6 million, uh, we as a city with limited resources had to go to court with the Department of Defense in order to clean up those contaminants because they were found by the EPA to be in the drinking water of our residents. That, to me, as a local elected official, was an unacceptable response from the De Department of Defense not to accept the liability that it later took a local government to be able to find at fault. It is very hard to attract not just service members but families uh, to the missions at Holloman Air Force Base uh, when there is a danger that they will be ingesting toxic chemicals from buildings that have asbestos and other uh, chemicals that have yet to be remediated, uh, despite the record investments that we have made in our defense budget year after year. I think this is a critical uh, readiness component, uh, especially where we are handling uh, such critical missions in places like White Sands Missile Range and Holloman Air Force Base that are so critically important to our, the defense of our nation. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. 
Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look in Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look in Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look in Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities uh, that you could do 
other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you gotta understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You wanna think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, I the way that I kinda brilliant. see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. 
and um, mm. being born in rural southwest uh, mm. Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.